You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, thank you, God, for being a sovereign Lord who, God, who, God, when you look at us, God, that you see, um, that you see beautiful things that you can make out of nothing, God. God, you, that, you, that even no, no sorrow that we have, God, cannot be healed by you. God, that um, as we go through this life, we receive, we have hurts, pains. God, we go through tough things, but God, you've always stood there. You've always come toward us, God, loving us first before we loved you and giving us an opportunity to come and be a part of what you're doing. And so, God, we pray, God, that as we, God, as we dig into your word, that we would find ourselves, God, immersed in your mercy, your love. God, as we, as we share, as we think about, God, this idea of how to, how to give hope, how to counsel other people, God, God, that we would glean from this, God, and, and see your heart. And God, that we'd be able to lead other people, not only to, to Jesus, but God, to help them live a godly life as you've planned. And God, we pray for these things and many more in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to say good morning to anybody who I haven't had the pleasure of speaking to. Hope everybody's doing just fine. Um, If you would, um, go ahead and grab your Bibles, if you would, and let's turn to the book of Job. The book of Job. Um, Today we're going to be looking at Job chapter 8, but before we kind of get into Job chapter 8, let's start at um, um, Job chapter 7. Job chapter 7, starting at verses 20. We're going to read um, the last couple of verses of Job 7, and then we're going to go right into chapter 8. Once again, that's Job, starting at Job chapter 7, verse 20, and we're going to go into um, chapter 8. When you are there, say amen. Um, And just to kind of keep you on track, um, as you know that we've been, for the last few weeks, we've been um, exploring Job a little bit and looking at this kind of this idea of how not to counsel. And so um, at the beginning... um, Brother Jeff did a remarkable job of kind of walking you guys through the, the preface of Job and what it, how it um, fits into the bigger narrative of the Bible and how you look at the story and how it's, it, it asks this big question of why do bad things happen to those who, seem, who are seemingly good? Why do bad things happen to those who are good? Well, as we go through this thing where we see that Job, I mean, God picks a fight with the devil and he, and he says, have you considered my servant Job? God allows Satan to try to sift, through, sift Job, but he tells him that he can't kill him. Well, then as he goes and he tries and he takes all these things from Job, from his family to his, his wealth, to his house, to everything that he has, he, he comes to the point where he's so broken, he's so lost, and he has so much, and he has so much brokenness in his, um, and pain on his mind, I mean, in his heart, that his three friends show up. I mean, that three of his friends show up, and they try to begin to comfort him. Um, Brother Jeff talked about, um, in the last couple of weeks, Eliphaz. Eliphaz was like the, was like the older prominent one of all, the, of all the friends. And when he came, he came as kind of an elder statesman, this prominent man who simply, um, who simply tried to explain to Job that, Job, that there has to be some sin somewhere in your life. Well, then, we'll get into the rest of it in just a moment. Um, in, fact, let me, in fact, this is how basically Job um, re, um, makes a rebuttal to Eliphaz, for said, um, for said accusations. In fact, start at chapter 7, verse 20. If, if you're there, say amen. 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 And here's what Job says, and we're going to go right into chapter 8, so stay with me. Have I, have I sinned? What have I done to you, a watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target? And so why am I a burden, I mean, so that I'm a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? 
For now I will lie down in the dust, and I will seek in me, and you will seek me, but will not mean, but I will not be. Jumping in the chapter eight. Then Bildad, the Shu, the Shuhite, answered, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be like a mighty wind? Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert pervert, I mean, what is right? If your son sinned against him, and he delivered them into the, into the power of their transgressions, if you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, and if you are pure and upright, surely now he would have roused himself for you and store you righteous, I mean, restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly." I'm going to stop right there just for the sake of time. Um, if you would, bow your heads with me and let's pr- we'll pray and then we'll dig into God's word. Amen. Dear God, I thank you for this opportunity to share your word. God, I pray that as I convey this message, God, that it's received in good health and I mean, God, with, with right mind. God, I pray that, God, um, that you help me convey all the points that you have, God, because this is your message. I'm simply the messenger. God, purify me. God, help me to um, God, help me to say what you want to say, God, because it's, because it's your words that I'm, that I'm conveying from my heart. And God, I pray that you would bless this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so we find ourselves now in chapter 8 where, where we, um, where we um, encounter this guy by the name of Bildad. Um, let me, and, and I'm, gosh, I tell you, sometimes you have so much on your mind you want to try to get out the gate. Let me start back, let me start back and let's work through this thing. <clears throat> All right, let's start over. Here we go. All right, so temperance. One of the things that we have to learn as we're counseling people, one of the things that I hope that all of you, if you've had the, if you've had the chance to counsel somebody, one of the things that you're going to have to learn to do as you counsel someone, whether it's in a very informal setting or whether it's in a professional setting or whether it's friend, some loved one, whoever, you got to learn the idea of temperance. Now, here's a definition for temperance. Temperance is voluntary self-restraint. Voluntary self-restraint. Now, when you look at this, you think about, when you think about it in counseling, you go, well, Reggie, this is something we really could be using all throughout our lives, and that, and that is true. We need to be able to use temperance in every, in every area of our lives. We gotta know when to, we gotta know when to stop eating. We have to know when to stop, um, when to stop indulging ourselves in certain things. We have to know how to use voluntary self-restraint when it comes to um, a various amount of things, but specifically what we wanna focus on today is learning how to give voluntary self-restraint to your words. How many of you have been in a situation where someone was getting on your nerves and you felt like the very next thing you want to say is the one thing you want to say to shut them down? How many of you have ever been, well, I know I've been that way. I know it's just me, right? Just me? Okay, all right, that's fine. All right, but um, we've all found ourselves in situations where we want to say something that really we shouldn't say. And how do we not say it? It takes a lot of voluntary self-restraint not to say things that we shouldn't, especially in counseling. When people are hurting, when people are going through things, sometimes we want to get to the, we want to get to the bread and butter, we want to go ahead and get to the end and solve the problem and fix things. But sometimes it's not about fixing the problem. It's about caring for the person. And if you care for the person, they'll begin to want to fix their problems, amen? And so that takes time, that takes patience, that takes a whole lot of different things. But guess what? Not everybody is adept at doing that. And here's where Bildad kicks in. You see, in chapters three and four, um, we find that Eliphaz has this dialogue with, with Job and he tells Job, Job, and he says it in this very elderly statesman I mean, manner, 
He says, Job, listen, man, you know, there's got to be some sin somewhere in your camp, man. You've got to be doing something because this wouldn't happen to people who follow God and who follow him righteously. There's got to be some sin. You've done something wicked. You need to repent. Well, then Job finds himself in the place where, and, the, and you've read a little bit of his rebuttal, but not all of it, but you find Job in this place where he says, listen, I, I agree. If I've done something wrong, I should be punished. But what have I done? Job is in this constant state of, I don't, listen, it, what, what, what's happening doesn't fit. Job is dazed. Job is confused. He doesn't quite understand why this is all happening. But the one thing he refuses to do through it all is curse God. And so he finds himself in this thing, in this, in this situation where he's rebutting Eliphaz, but then he's not the only, but then Eliphaz is not the only person that wants to talk to Job. And so then enters a man by the name of Bildad. Now, before I tell you what Bildad did, let me give you a little background about who Bildad is. You see, Bildad is a man who was called a Shuhite. He was a descendant of Shua, who was one of the sons of Abraham. And now Abraham had, had, had multiple sons, right? But one of these sons was by um, his second wife, Keturah. Now there came a time where Abraham had sent his sons back towards his homeland so that they can live, so that they can live in peace and, and find substance and, and, be, and be stabilized, right? Well, we believe that those people who are, who are descendants of Shua end up going back to places like Earl the Chaldees and they, and they obtained great wealth and they had great power. And as you look throughout history up until the point where Job, where, um, where the, I mean, the history um, where Job kicks in, we see these people have, accu- have accumulated wealth, these people have accumulated power, and they are pretty prominent people. But not only that, we see that not only is he a, a prominent people, but when, remember, in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, names mean a lot, don't they? People's names carry a lot of weight. Bildad's name possibly meant the son of contention, right? Which means this, let me sum it all up. He was rich, he had a lot of power, he was probably pious, oh yeah, and he liked to start stuff, right? So you got a man by the name of Bildad, the son of contention, who, who, who has heard Job and Eliphaz go back and forth about all this conversation about who should repent and how. But then it gets to the point where Bildad has a chance to go in this, I mean, go in this, tag into this conversation, and now it's his turn to share what he thinks is wrong. And after hearing all this discourse, it seems as if Bildad gets mad. He gets mad, right? And then he begins to do something that we all try to want to do when we get a little angry. Um, the t- in fact, I'm sorry, I, m- I forgot to mention the title of my message, but the title of my message is really two subtitles, really. Um, number one is Build That, When Keeping It Real Goes Wrong, all right? And then the second one is, if you want the alternate title, Build That, When Shooting Straight Goes Wrong, right? But we all find this time, we find this place in our lives where when somebody gets on our nerves, we decide we want to shoot straight. We want to tell somebody something that they need to hear because we think they need to hear it right at that moment. And this is exactly what Bildad does. But as Bildad gets the, loads, gets the load off his chest, he doesn't realize that his counsel has not changed the demeanor or the plight of Job. And so Bildad meant well in his counsel. Bildad wanted to counsel Job. He wanted to lead him into righteousness, but he failed to realize that his words were ill-timed and misunderstood. Even though he tried to shoot straight or keep it real, it went terribly wrong. Perhaps we can learn something from, um, not only from Eliphaz and all the things that we've learned from Brother Jeff about how not to counsel, but I think there's some things that we can learn from Bildad. And with this in mind, I want to take us through some observations about some of the mistakes people make in counseling other people. 
Now, once again, let's go back over to verse, chapter 8, verse 2. You see, it says, when Bildad the Shuhite answered, and he was answering Job because Job has just said he is not responsible for, I mean, he, I mean he's, not, um, he's not guilty of the things that they're accusing him of. Bildad steps in and imagine this angry man or this contentious this person who wants to pick a fight say, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be like a mighty wind? Whoa, wow. He comes out the gate accusing this man of being a liar. He says, listen, why are you blowing smoke? Why are you lying? Who are you trying to fool, right? And he comes out guns blazing. Not only that, he looks, I mean, not only that, he goes on, and we'll, I'm not, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but then he asks the question, does God pervert, ju- pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? So he's rebutting to the fact that Job said, listen, I haven't done anything wrong. Well, then Bildad says, well, if you haven't done anything wrong, so you mean to tell me that God is on your side for doing wrong, right? That's what you're trying to say to me? Surely you're lying, right? And so he comes out guns blazing, but now the problem is he hadn't heard any of the discourse that Job had made in the previous two chapters. He had already come up with his idea of what was wrong with Job, how he was going to handle it, and how he was going to come out guns blazing and straighten Job out. It leads me to a couple of thoughts. Number one, your words are important when counseling. How, I mean, your words are important when counseling, but how you convey your words are just as important. It's not that sometimes that the words that somebody needs to hear don't need to be said. Sometimes it's how you say it so it can be received. There are times when people are falling in sin, and they need to know that they are falling in sin. We can't shy away from telling people about, I mean, helping to confront sin, amen? We can't shy away from that, can we? No, we shouldn't. But now how we convey the message of where people are, that will help a lot. Now notice that he comes out the gate calling Job a liar, right? Very strongly. He says, you're blowing mighty wind. That's probably not the right way to come out the gate accusing somebody of doing something wrong, right? Not only that, we need to always learn to be sensitive to the needs of those who you counsel. You see, Eliphaz counseled as a prominent elder with a very pious attitude, but Bildad counseled as a blunt, straightforward traditionalist, seeing life as either black or white. It's either this way or that way. There is nothing else. I, you, there can't be no other part of the situation. Another thought that I can think of as we come from this, your words can be powerful, use them wisely. And for this, I have a very short story. You see, isn't it amazing how out of, the mouth of, out of our mouth, both constructive and critical speech can come forth? You see, one day there was a, there was a, I mean, a boy told his mother, mother, I love you. And the mother who suffered from self-esteem problems said, how can you love somebody like me who's fat and ugly? And then he said, oh, mom, you're not fat and ugly. You're fat and pretty. <laughs> you see, our words mean a lot, right? Um, okay, let me, I'll give you the rest of the story. He's still being grounded, okay? Just so you know, that's the rest of the story. He's still being grounded. Um, but you see, out of, our same, out of the same mouth, we can, we can give constructive things. We can also do things that are very critical. And we have to be careful how we use our words. Once again, his tone, his tone was very imperfect. He, did he probably need to say that because based on what he knew, possibly? Now we find out later on that, yes, they are wrong about what Job has done. They are very wrong. But his tone does not help Job come to repentance, does it? 
No, we have to learn how to be sensitive to people. We need, we need to learn how to be um, sensitive to people's plights because here's the thing, if you were in that same situation, would you want them to approach, approach you the same way you approach them? You have to ask yourself that question. Another thought, you counsel with compassion. You actually, and I said this already, but let me ask you again. Would I want someone to handle me like this? Would you want somebody to come near you and handle you in the way that Bildad is handling Job? And remember, one day you're going to need compassion too. How would you want someone to come near you and share and show, I mean, and show um, compassion and counsel you? You see, another thing too, blunt theology doesn't equal godly righteousness, especially in the wrong context. You see, one of the things that Bildad did wrong too was in his pious attitude, he decided to tell him what the word of God says. Now here's the problem. Job also knew the word of God. And he's, was like, he, and he's basically like, yeah, you're right, but I haven't done anything wrong, right? That's the problem. He quoted the word of God. He used, he thought, yeah, this is going to get him. This is going to, he's going to be convicted. He's going to fall on his knees. He's going to cry. He's going to repent. And it's all going to be done. And then this, no, it doesn't happen because he used theology in the wrong context. We shouldn't use the word of God necessarily to just simply beat up on people. Do people need to know about sin? Yes. Do people need to be convicted by it? Yes. Do we need to use it simply as a tool just to beat up? No. We need to use it to be a tool of hope, a tool to help them be built up, a tool to help them come to know the Savior of the universe. Amen? Amen. And you see, Bildad, he should have humbly recognized the position that he was counseling from. He was in a very unique and prime position Job has just experienced the, tragic, the, the tragedy of his lifetime, and he and his three friends are the first people there to give him hope, to help him through, to see him, to, to, or to begin to see him to the other side, and yet he squanders it trying to keep it real, trying to straight shoot, trying to get to come to Jesus just like that. Now, they started off well, didn't they? If you go back and read in previous chapters, when Job is sitting there and he's, and he's grieving, they sit with him. They cry with him. They begin to mourn with him. That was a good thing, right? But man, when they start to speak, a whole bunch of other different things start happening, right? And so one thing we need to learn, one thing we need to learn from Bildad is we got to know how to approach counseling people. We have to use the right tone. We have to be sensitive to the, we have to be sensitive to the situations. And here's some very practical Bible verses that you can, that you can um, lean on as you think about counseling other people. First, Ephesians 4.29, it says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. We need to be careful to use language that builds up and edifies, not tears down and makes worse. Colossians chapter 4, chapter 6, I mean, chapter 4, verse 6, it says, let your speech be all, always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to show, I mean, how you should respond to each person. Our speech shouldn't be wild and, 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 un, and uncocked. We should be trying to temper our words in such a way that we, bring, that we give grace to those who hear our words. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 24 says this, pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. We wanna be the type of people that give, that give hope to people as we speak to them not those who don't want to hear our counsel when they, when they see us coming. 
And so with that being said, that is the first point. Incorrect tone. Bildad came to Job in an insensitive, blunt manner, not totally understanding everything, which leads me to my next point. In verse, in, let's read in chapter, look at chapter 8, verse 8. Now, see, first of all, Bildad has already come out the gate guns blazing, telling him, um, telling, telling Job about the fact that, um, number one, you're a liar. Well, then later on in chapter, I mean, chap, I mean look at verse um, 4, he, then he begins to blame, he starts to, like, come up with the way, I mean, some, I mean, the blame for why he's in this situation. He says, if your son sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgressions. So in other words, if you kind of get that, he said, oh yeah, you know the reason why you win this? Your sons were evil, right? So then he starts blaming other people, right? He starts really going for the, he starts going for the jugular, doesn't he? Not only that, he goes in verse eight, he says, Please inquire about the past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers, for we are only of yesterday and know nothing. Because our days are, I mean, on the earth are as shadows, will they not teach you and tell you and bring, and bring your words forth from their minds? You see, not only did Job use the incorrect tone and insensitive, in an insensitive tone, Job also lacked understanding before sharing his wisdom. I mean, not Job, I'm sorry. Bildad lacked understanding before sharing his wisdom. You see, Bildad had just heard Eliphaz counsel Job about the situation. And he also heard Job make the rebuttal to explain he had not done anything, yet he did not understand where Job was coming from. In fact, he thought he had already figured out what was wrong with Job and was going, and was going based on his personal analysis from afar. You see, Bildad, you see, Bildad did this. He passed judgment. You see, he made an assumption, and making assumptions are dangerous without complete understanding. He made an assumption. He assumed that from afar, and if you go back and read the chapter, it almost comes out of left field. Like, there is no alluding to the fact that Job's sons had done anything, but yet when Bildad comes to the conclusion, and when he starts talking and gun blazing, the first thing he says is, oh yeah, that's why you're having these problems. It's because your sons, they sinned. Uh-huh. And now you're facing all of that because of them, right? Which was the most insensitive thing you could possibly say, considering that all of his sons had just died, right? That's the most insensitive thing he could have possibly said at that moment. And not only that, if you go down to verse 13, he says, so are the paths of all, all who forget God and the hope of the godless will perish. He's calling God, I mean, he's calling Job godless. In fact, he's calling Job a hypocrite. In verse 20, he goes on to call Job an evildoer. That's a great friend, isn't it, guys? That's a really good friend. He, he calls you a liar, he calls you a hypocrite, and an evildoer. He, he just sounds like such a great counselor. Don't you want him counseling you? You see, Job, you see, not Job, Bildad passed judgment. You see, sometimes we find ourselves giving more analysis and commentary on others' lives and don't understand why people are in the place that they're in. Even in the situation that seems like it's an open and shut case, we must be sure that we totally understand what's going on. You see, a policeman was heading home after a long, hard day on the patrol. He had dealt with, the, with a whole succession of difficult people and a mountain of frustrating paperwork. All he wanted to do at this point was to kick back, unwind, enjoy some peace, quiet, and maybe watch a few innings of baseball on TV. But as he neared home, 
He was just, I mean, he was, as he was heading home, he was startled by a vehicle that came careening around, the, around a sharp curve and narrowly missed, missed his squad car. His car passed within a few inches of him, and the other driver shouted out, Pig! The police officer was suddenly energized. He slammed on the brakes, and all was set to turn his squad car around and head off in hot pursuit. But as he rounded the curve, he ran head-on into a large pig that was standing in the middle of the road, right? Making assumptions, right? Making assumptions. You see, sometimes we find ourselves making assumptions about other people that we really shouldn't. And here's the problem with that. When we make assumptions, our assumptions become presuppositions, meaning that we use these as base, as base thoughts on how we deal with other people. And, they, and, and what those things can do, they can hinder communications and relationships. You see, once again, nowhere in the story does it say, does it implicate Job's sons as being the reason why Job is experiencing what he is experiencing. Job is having a, a tough time, but Bildad decides that he's going to reach out and make the conclusion you see, although the story does not hear this out, I mean, although the story does not bear this out, this may be, I can't help but wonder, if Bildad had been watching from afar and was jealous of, his blameless, of, of Job's blameless, blamelessness before God, I wonder if he envied the relationship that Job had with God. Or I also wonder, perhaps, if he had an experience with Job's sons that he just couldn't let go of, and that caused his infatuation with deciding to label these boys as being the reason why the transgressions happen. But either way, he made a judgment based on experience and without all the context. Think about the relationship that you could be hindering in our church simply because you work off of certain assumptions. You don't talk to people because you don't believe that they would even receive you well. You don't share struggles because of the fear of judgment. You don't connect with opportunities in the church because you are afraid they will take you out of your comfort zone. But we can't make those assumptions. We have to do things to dispel those myths and those assumptions. We have to be able to go connect with people and, begin, and do things that won't, hinder, that won't hinder and cause us to make the assumptions that become presuppositions which help hinder us in the communication with our spouses, with our friends, with church leaders, with whoever, amen? We have to learn to get over the assumptions and work to engage with people so that we can end those assumptions. Another thought, your experiences and traditions can be a good teacher, but they're not complete teachers. You see, if you go back to verse, I mean, verse 8, chapter 8, verse 8, you see that when Bildad accuses Job of being this sinner and that the reason why this happened to you because of, because of some unrepentant sin, he basically says, listen, you know why I know I'm right? Because, hey, if you go back and look at all the forefathers, right, when this happened, when A happened, B, when A plus B happened, C happened, right? And so he just simply said, it's because of tradition. I know this is true because of my experiences and because of tradition. But sometimes experience is not as universal as they may seem. Um, maybe, maybe, I mean, a lot of you guys in here are parents. When you were, as you were um, parents, as you were maybe having your first child or some or even another child, perhaps you got a lot of advice when you were preparing for the arrival of your children. As I was thinking about this sermon, when I was thinking about this idea of tradition or hearing these things, I thought about me, things that me and my wife had heard as we came up to the, um, the birth of Abby. 
And some of these may be cultural. Some of these may be, you, may everybody have heard them. Some of them may be weird, so don't judge me, okay, guys? Just want to make sure everybody's clear on that, all right? Like, for instance, I've heard things, we heard things like, be careful about the full moon close to your due date. You may go into early labor, right? Has anybody heard that one? Okay, good, all right, whew. Man, I thought I was going to have to, whew. All right, if you don't buy your child hard-bottom shoes, they will never learn to walk. Anybody heard that one? Okay. If, you, if, if your baby sits high, it's a girl. If your baby sits low, it's a boy. See, that's just, confirmed, like, yeah, see, it's high. See, that's right, right? Um, if your baby has a hernia, tape a silver dollar to the baby's stomach. Okay, it's getting weird now. People starting to look at me strange, like, I get it, I get it, I get it. <laughs> hey, we heard it. I can't deny it. We heard it, I promise. I, I'm not making this up, I, I swear, all right? Um, don't cut your baby's hair before their first birthday. You may mess with their soft spot. How many of these probably came from somebody's experience with babies, but doesn't mean that they're true universally, right? All these stories start from maybe one experience with one person, and it's not even the complete story. It's just, as it passed through folklore, it was like, no, 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 you must do this, because if you don't, things will happen, right? But here's the problem, it's not universal. You could have seen the shock on my, on my parents' faces when my, when my daughter started walking and she had never worn shoes, right? You should have, they just, ah! It just killed them, right? They just, they just went ballistic, like, you gotta be sneaking wearing hard bottom shoes. No, we haven't bought any hard bottom shoes, all right? She has flip-flops or something, Are we, we, okay guys, you know? But, but those types of things happen, and that's along the line of what Bill Dad had done. He said, listen, it's my experience that because this happened, this should happen, right? And then he looked back and says, and hey, listen, don't just believe me. Go back and look at your forefathers, right? Look at your forefathers. They were, they, when it happened to them, it was true, right? But little did he know, little did he know that God was doing something that, he, that would have totally blown them out the water, right? And that's why the, the book of Job is so fascinating, right? It, it proclaims Job as a blameless and upright man, but yet he experienced so much tragedy that it just doesn't compute, right? Bildad was making a conclusion that, listen, you know why you're not prospering? Uh-oh, here comes some bad gospel, guys. You know why you're not prospering, right? You know why? Because you're sinning, right? That's why you ain't making no money. That's why you lost everything, right? You're sinning, right? And so that's the issue. He has gone off his own experience and his own traditions, and he has assumed, he has made open assumptions about why he thinks that something is true. And that can be very dangerous. Here's some practical advice for this, for, for this idea of um, not only, we, we talked about, the, about having the right tone in counseling, but then also making sure that you share appropriate wisdom at the right time. Here's some, here's some practical advice. James chapter 1, verse 19. It, it's in two parts here. It says, this you know, my brethren, my beloved brethren, but everyone must, but must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Two parts there, guys. When we're counseling, we need to spend more time listening than talking. We need to spend more time listening to people and what they have to say than telling them, than telling them what we think they should do. You know, one of the most annoying things can happen 
and I, you know, I pray it doesn't happen to you. I pray you have an experience. I'm sure I have because I've had a chance to counsel people. And only after I got finished, did I realized I'd put my foot in my mouth. But that was this time I was counseling this person. And I, and I didn't realize until I left that I had done most of the talking. They hadn't really shared much of their problem. I had just went in because, you know, from afar, I'd already made presuppositions because I'd, I saw these things happen. I knew about previous experience. And so I'd already, ding, hey, I know exactly what you need to hear right now. Right? But you know what the problem is? They didn't talk. So they didn't really get to share with me their perspective of how, where they thought that they were. Right? And so in the end, do you think they've been back to counsel with me? No. No. And listen, we all make mistakes, but we have to be honest and know that when we make those mistakes, my hope is that the mistakes that you make when you counsel and sit with people and try to do your best, that you will learn from them. I hope that you will learn from them, guys. And listen, not every situation is perfect, guys. Let me tell you, counseling is not for the faint of heart, okay? I'm gonna give you some, let me give you some real practical advice, guys. When you're, when you're, and listen, I'm saying this more so as a, just a, as a lay person, not, listen, when you're, talk, when you're counseling somebody, you have to recognize what you can handle and what you can't, okay? Listen, don't give advice about stuff that you know nothing about, <laughs> okay? Don't try to wing it. That's the worst thing you could possibly do, okay? Listen, just admit that you haven't been, listen, listen, just simply say, listen, I haven't been through that, but listen, I think I know somebody who I could refer you to who'll be able to help you with that situation. Listen, you may, you may start grabbing the shovel and digging even deeper. Don't, don't, listen, if you don't know about it, don't talk about it. Don't dig ditches, guys, because they only get deeper, okay? So I'm saying that's a, really, a very practical thing. And so, number one, so we've already looked at two bad things when keeping it real goes wrong, right? You use the wrong tone, right? The, the wrong tone and the wrong sensitivity. Number two, you share the wrong wisdom at the wrong time, right? Or you make assumptions. But number three is even more important. Hopeless comfort. When you share hopeless comfort. Hopeless comfort is no comfort at all. Look at verses 20 through 22. Bildad, after berating Job, after, after telling Job basically about how God deals with the wicked, after going through all this diatribe and this discourse, at the end, he tries to tie it up with a neat little bow, but he, in the end, he still ends up offending Job even more. Job, chapter 20, I mean, verse 20, he says, Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity. So once again, he's on that verge of calling Job a liar, right? Or he, nor he will he support the evildoers. That's a, direct, that's a direct shot right there. He's like, God wouldn't support evildoers, right? He's already spelling out what he thinks about Job. Verse 21, he will fill your mouth with laughter, laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no longer. Oh, that seems very hopeful if you hadn't just read the part where he, the part where he called him an evildoer and a liar. Right? He's like, you're a liar, you're an evil dude. But you know what? One day God's going to make you smile. It's going to be all right. It's good. I promise. Right? That's what he did to him, right? So he gives him a hopeless comfort. Right? In fact, let's revert back to what Brother Jeff said in an earlier message. Bildad was, was on such a high from giving his diatribe, he starts going into spiritual gas mode. Right? He starts just laying it on thick. Right? but doesn't seem to give any relevant counsel to comfort Job still. In fact, he worsens the situation. You see, hope is the basis of the Christian faith. 
It's more than just us wishing that God would do miracles in our lives. It's more than that. It's having the confidence that God, who is living and sovereign, also controls the things that can be expected to that bring to pass that which is ultimately best. So that means not just trusting God to do some miracle thing in your life, but trusting when the chips fall down that, listen, God is still going to make sense of all of this. That's ultimately where our hope lies, is that even though we're broken people who fall short of God's glory, God is going to take us, redeem us, and make us beautiful. Amen? That's what we should all lay our, stake, our claim at. But yet, Bildad doesn't even give him that hope. That, listen, although things are bad, they would be better. He basically accused him of things over and over again. And Jesus says, you know what? You repent, God will make you smile. It'll be great, I promise. You see, when you're counseling or when you're with somebody who, who needs counsel, let me ask you a question. Does your presence provide hope or hopelessness? Does your presence provide hope or hopelessness? To kind of stir that point on, everyone, if you're in Job chapter 8, go over to Job chapter 29. Job chapter 29. And I want you to, when you get to Job chapter 29, I want you to go to verse 21. Now, to give you a little context of what this is and how, it's, and how this has come about, um, this is later on in the discourse where Job still is defending himself. And Job, in chapter 29, basically kind of goes on, this, goes on this, um, this, this, memory, this memory moments tour where he recalls the greater times that he had in the faith. In fact, he goes through this long diatribe about all the things, all the righteous things, all the good things he had spent his time doing before all of this tragedy happened. And so in chapter 29, verse 21, he gets to the point where he says this. He says to me, and he's referring to um, people who, um, who need justice, people who need answers. He says to me, they listened and they waited and they kept silent for my counsel. After my words, I mean, after my words, they did not speak again. And my speech dropped on them. They waited for me as for the rain and they opened their mouth as for the spring rain. Let me, let me help you understand what that's saying. You see, Job is saying that, listen, there was a point where when I would counsel people who needed hope, when I would speak my words, they would understand my words. Not only would they understand my words, they would stand and they would want more of my words. They would, it was like being in the refreshing rain, right? Job's counsel was refreshing to those who heard it. And I'm asking you that same question. When people, when you, when, when you have the opportunity to share life with people, do they come away feeling, they've come away feeling refreshed or dry and still thirsty? You want to be the type of person that gives hope to people, not the type of person that takes and dries up. All right? You want to be the type of person that gives hope. Bildad never, never gave Job any real hope. I once again say this. If you don't have all the answers, don't make things worse by trying to give them. If you're not comfortable with a subject, don't try to broach it. Simply, simply explain that you may not be as equipped as others for this and refer them to the appropriate resource. Care about the person's well-being more than the person's problems that they have. And lastly, in this thought, in this thought process, sometimes silence is the best counsel a person can give. 
There are just times when words cannot explain a tragedy that happens. There are times when no amount of biblical scripture, well, I mean, although the scripture holds all the hope, it does, there are just times when you may be able to explain why this happened to some degree, but will it be helpful right now? Would it make sense? Sometimes we just, there'll just be times where we need to say nothing. And, and keep in mind that that happened early on in the story where Job's friends just saw him crying. And rather than say a whole lot, they decided to just sit with him. Sometimes people need that. Sometimes, and, and then when they're ready to talk, they will. But to kind of spur along this idea about silence, right? Sometimes silence is the best counsel a man can give. Women, you'll be able to relate to this story very well. You see, when women are in labor, she's hurting. Amen? Amen. You see, in this situation, no one has ever really knows how exactly how long the pain is going to last. The husband is there holding her hand, wiping her forehead, patting her back, and that's all he can do. He's limited. Holding her hand doesn't change the pain. He's just there to comfort her. So sometimes that's just what we have to be, people who comfort. But now also understand this. In the midst of all of our pain, in the midst of all the things that we're going through, God is trying to accomplish something through every believer. And he wants believers to comfort one another while we get through the painful process. We're coming to the end of this, folks. So if, if you would, go ahead and let's go ahead and stand. You see, by the end of Job 8, Bildad has not produced anything new that encourages Job's situation. But if he had given the right counsel with the right tone, with the right understanding, and gave hope, he could have helped him, he could have helped Job produce something great in his life. And that should be your aim to counsel one another along as God works to produce something great in our lives and is different from person to person. You see, for some, God is working to produce spiritual maturity. Some of us, God has, has, been, has been working with us. He's been with us. He's helped us repent of sin. He's helping us to walk through difficult things. He's doing this thing of sanctification where the things that are hard for us to let go of, he's helping us to let go of but it takes time. For some of us, he's doing this for spiritual maturity. But for some of us, he's trying to, even in the midst of our pain, he's trying to move us towards salvation. He's trying to help us see that our need for Christ is, greater, is the greatest need than anything else we have on this planet. You see, when we're counseling people, we have to learn that although we can give some hope there really is only one hope. There really is only one hope. You see, my, you know, in the midst of people who die, in the, midst of, in the midst of tragedies that happen, in the midst of everything in the world that goes on, as, as um, right before we came on stage, um, me and Jeffrey and Amanda were just talking about this recent rash of what seemingly random shootings that happened. I mean, although they're somewhat connected and related, um, I mean, it's just amazing, like, woman's outside jogging, gets shot, right? Woman cleaning a church in, um, in Neshoba County, man goes in, shoots and kill her, right? 
all these things are happening, and, and it just doesn't seem to make any sense, right? When people die, it doesn't make any sense. When tragedy happens, it doesn't make any sense. But you know what? In reality, the only hope we can give people is the hope of heaven. That's all we can really give people. It's appropriate that that song that Jeffrey played earlier about all the, like all of Earth's, of all of Earth's sorrows, only heaven can heal these things, which means that we have to have a relationship with Jesus. And if we have that relationship with Jesus, he will help us work through the hurts, the pains, and the hangups that we have, but we have to learn to turn them over to him. And you, all of you serve as counselors to point to point people to the one who judges justly, to the one who heals, to the one who can mend all broken hearts. And that's, and that's really all we have. The hope of heaven is all we have. So when you're out there, whether it's random and somebody stops you to counsel them, whether it's a friend, loved one, whoever it may be, remember, when it's all said and done, no matter what, what counsel you give, in the end it all amounts to one hope, and that hope is Jesus that if you, if you accept him, if you believe in his words, if you trust in the word of God, if you follow him all the days of your life, if you, live, if you live a life that's pleasing unto God, you will inherit the one thing that no one can ever take away from you, heaven, heaven, that's it. And so with that being said, I, actually, I, I believe that God, through whatever pain people are going through, He's doing one or two things to you once again. That spiritual maturity, God, you may be experiencing some pain right now because God is trying to get you to a specific place of spiritual maturity. And he's getting you there because at some point you're going to have to grow even more. It all works together. And then for some of you, you may not have already accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Well, God, is it? you may think this is crazy, but maybe the pain that you have in your life is God trying to draw you near to him. Maybe God is calling you into a relationship with him. You've done it your way all your life. It hasn't worked. Won't you try the one thing that, that can work? And that's accepting Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, giving your problems to him, letting him help you work through it. This is not a, one, this is not a, a pill you take and all your problems disappear. It is just the beginning to accept him. But it's going to help you realize that the things that you were doing, they weren't adding up to nothing. But when you, get, when you focus on him, it adds up for everything. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you, God, for the opportunity to share your word. God, I pray that it was um, coherent. I pray that people understood, God, where this was going. God, I pray that as we learn to counsel people, as we learn to share your words with people, God, that we won't be the people who um, take the, the opportunity to counsel people and share your words with people haphazardly. God, that we would um, do it with a sensitivity, that we would do it, God, with um, much wisdom from you. And God, more than anything, that we would give people the hope, not just any hope, but the hope of heaven, that one day, God, that the Savior who died for our sins, God, the person who gives us value, who gives us identity, the person who has prepared a place for us, God, so that when we fall away from this world, God, we will spend eternity with you. You've given us everything to live for, but it requires us to die to ourselves. And so, God, I pray that if there is someone, God, who hasn't died to themselves, God, that they would take the first step right now. God, that they would look at themselves, see themselves as you see them, God, as a person who has sinned, who has fallen short of your glory. But then, God, not only will they just see that, God, but they will see that, God, they know that you can make them whole again, that they would accept you as their Lord and Savior, that they would give their lives over to you, not just at this church house, not just when they're around church people, not just when they're out in public, God, but even in private, God, that they would give their whole entire lives to you. And God, that you will take it 
show them their faults, make them brand new, and God, help them to see, God, that your plans, your way has always been better. God, I pray, God, that everyone in this room, God, whether, they're, whether you're pushing them towards spiritual maturity or whether you're pressing them towards salvation in you, God, that they would, that, that they would take hold of you, and God, we know that you would never let go of them. And, we do, and you know, we know you do this, God, because you love us. And we do this because, and we, um, and we preach this word and we, and we listen to this word and we proclaim your truth, God, because it is your glory who we live for. We pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.